I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're looking at the entire book of 1 Peter. The commentary here is quite uh, extensive, so we'll just be looking at the high points of the commentary and reading the text. Beginning with, first of all, the introduction to the book of 1 Peter. This epistle was written to the Christians under great persecution during the uh, reign of Roman Emperor Nero. It was written by Peter to the dispersed Christians around 62 to 64 A.D., and it was to provide them with a doctrinal foundation. The place names provided in verse 1 are located in today's Turkey. Peter's readers to this epistle were predominantly of Gentile rather than Jewish background. Now reading chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter uses the word strangers to describe the recipients of his letter here. The Greek word he uses there is translated pilgrims over in chapter 2, verse 11. Peter probably means to use this word to identify their permanent residence as heaven rather than earthly. The Greek word translated pilgrims is used in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 to identify those people of faith in the context that their permanent home was heaven when it says they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That idea fits nicely with verses 2 through 5. Peter clearly establishes heaven as the end result of our salvation experience in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is particularly useful reading for those who have trouble accepting the fact that our salvation is eternal. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The great news here is this, I'm not responsible for keeping my own salvation secure. God is, and by the way, he's omnipotent. It's a very secure feeling to be kept by the power of God. So here we are 30 years or so after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the church at Jerusalem was established. You'll notice in these verses that Peter states as a fact the scriptural principle of the security of the believer in these verses without going into a detailed explanation. He packs a whole lot into these verses. In verses 3 and 4, Peter expresses a thankfulness to God for the living hope that we now have as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of his resurrection, we can look forward to our own resurrection. Verse 4 clearly describes the conditions of that resurrection as being in heaven, where we will be incorruptible and undefiled. 
Again, let me emphasize from verse 5 that God does the keeping by his own power, and it is not by our own power. Just to be safe, let's plainly state the obvious. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Then Peter gets into the issue of trial, lots of trial. Verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season of need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. These manifold temptations spoken of here by Peter probably refer to the persecutions under Nero of the believers, the Christians, who went through great, great persecution during his reign. On the website for today's reading, www.bibletrack.org, I've written an article called Trial, Testing, and Temptation that's located to the right side of the screen there. Also, that article is on the main page, the uh, page that you go to when you get to BibleTrack.org, in the center, and it's called Trial, Testing, and Temptation. There are several Greek words used there that you'll find helpful if you understand exactly the distinctions that are made between trial, testing, and temptation and the associated Greek words used. But let's suffice to say right now that the fire separates the impurities from the gold in this passage. That's what trial does for believers. To put it simply, Peter is normalizing the presence of trial, that means adversity, as a process of victorious Christian living. If you're going to be a Christian, you are going to experience adversity, and it's best to understand exactly why, when, and how. Notice the rejoicing that accompanies this trial in verse 8 as we look forward to the completion of our own salvation experience when it says the salvation of your souls. Verse 9 is the final redemption to heaven itself. Then let's look at those Old Testament prophets in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So Peter vindicates those Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah who prophesied about the coming Messiah. Of particular note here is Peter's reference to salvation in verses 1 through 5. This salvation by grace as a condition of the heart is exactly what was prophesied as a component of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. Now, while not all the conditions of the New Covenant have been realized at the time of the writing of this epistle, salvation by grace, in fact, had. If you want to see more about the New Covenant, look at the passage in the commentary on BibleTrack.org on Hebrews chapter 8. He further mentions in verse 11 that those prophets testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. 
We see Isaiah's prophecy concerning the sufferings of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53 and the glory in Isaiah chapter 11 and again in chapter 65. Verse 12 says that they previewed what we are now realizing. Then we come to chapter 1 verse 13 where we see that you belong to God, now you should act like it. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fastening yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. There's a metaphor in verse 13, and here it is. It says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Men wore long robes, but when they had a task requiring increased mobility, they tucked their robes in at their belts, and that action is referred to as girding up one's loins. While this was done for work, athletics, traveling, warfare, and so forth, based upon Peter's reference to the Passover lamb in verse 19, he may have had in view here Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Well, in any case, the message is clear. Stay alert in anticipation for the revelation of Jesus Christ. A reference to the rapture of believers seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The usage of the word hope in verse 13 comes from the Greek word elpizo. It literally means confident expectation. In other words, since you've been saved in Christ, act like it. Here's a call for believers to live out their righteousness before the world. I particularly find verses 15 and 16 meaningful, and here's what it says. But he, as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter's quoting here Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. These words are found again in Leviticus 19.2. These verses are talking about lifestyle after salvation, strengthened by the fact that Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 19 are also dealing with lifestyle. Let's take a look at three Greek words with the same root. The first is hagiasmas, used ten times in the New Testament, and is translated holiness or sanctification. The verb equivalent of this noun is hagiadzo, and it means to set apart or dedicate. 
The Greek adjective form of the root is hagios, which is translated holy, or when used as a noun is often translated saint. In other words, here's the concept being taught here. A believer is set apart for an eternity in heaven as a saint of God, and in that respect, all Christians are holy. Peter uses the adjective holy, the Greek word hagios, which means set apart, four times in two verses to indicate a believer's responsibility to set a Christ-like example before the world. Since believers are set apart in Christ, we should act like it under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Let the world see your life in Christ, or perhaps I should say, let the world see Christ in your manner of living. Verse 17 sets up the rest of the chapter, and here it is. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, cast the time of your sojourning here in fear. You'll notice the if clause, if you call on the Father, followed by the then clause, cast the time of your sojourning here in fear. The concept of sojourning here holds the connotation that believers are strangers in this world. The very same thought conveyed with this usage of strangers in verse 1. Believers are just passing through this world. As such, the fear of verse 17, the Greek word phobos, projects that our attitude be mindful of the seriousness of the situation as aliens in a Christ-rejecting world. Now Peter lists the supporting arguments for his exhortation of verse 17 by, first of all, explaining what's different about us, and that's our spiritual redemption. Notice in verse 18 that our redemption is not earthly in nature, but spiritual, as we see in verse 19, where it says, By the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. When Peter talks about those traditions, it's not exactly clear here as to whether he's talking about paganism or Judaism in verse 18. Whatever, they don't measure up to Christ's sacrifice of his own blood. Why? Because he was foreordained before the foundation of the world to make that sacrifice, verse 20, and because God raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, verse 21. As a result, our faith and hope is in God. Since our faith and hope is in God, verse 21, the believer's soul is purified, verse 22. Then comes a command, a Greek imperative verb, love one another. Remember that Jesus himself identified this as a vital aspect of being a disciple. He said that in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Verses 23 to 25 emphasize the eternal permanence of the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. When he, he quotes there, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8 and verse 24, when he says, For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. He follows this quotation with the statement of verse 25, when he says, The word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. In so doing, he applies the weight of the Old Testament prophecy to the contents of his epistle. When we talk about the mechanics of salvation, 1 Peter 1.23 is particularly exact when he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So, salvation is described as a born-again experience. 
Jesus described it as such to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Here's why that's important. Salvation is not a feeling or just an experience. It's a relationship that involves a transformation. That's what Paul describes it like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where he says, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Literally, the born-again experience involves being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We sometimes refer to salvation as the new birth for that reason. The analogy there is important to note as well. We saw that we are kept by the power of God in 1 Peter 1.5. The reason that's so is because we've been spiritually born into God's family, just like physically people are born into their families on earth. You can't undo a physical birth, nor can you undo a spiritual birth. Salvation is not just an experience or a feeling, as I said before. It's a permanent relationship with God as a result of being born again, just like both Christ and Peter have indicated. And that brings us to chapter 2, where we look at, who are you going to follow? Verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, its chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, believe that he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God in the day of visitation. It's because of this supernatural relationship described with Christ in the preceding chapter that here we are given the instructions for conducting one's Christian life. First of all, the love one another admonition of chapter 1 verse 22 is reinforced here with a little mini list in verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envies and all evil speakings, you will notice that all of those are relationship issues. Peter uses a couple of metaphors here to illustrate the believer's allegiance to Christ. The first metaphor for those believers is to desire the milk of the word as newborn believers. Verse 3 is an obvious reference to Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good, blesses the man that trusteth in him. The next is the familiar stone metaphor. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 and verse 6, and then Psalms 118, 22 and verse 7. 
And finally, Isaiah 8, 14 and verse 8. In other words, Christ is the stone prophesied in the Old Testament, and as believers, we are the living stones from him. This cornerstone teaching from the Old Testament was actually used by Jesus himself in a parable to the Jewish leaders regarding his imminent crucifixion, and that's found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Later in the New Testament, we then see Jesus as the cornerstone in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, and again in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. All of the New Testament usages are based upon these Old Testament scriptures. So to summarize, Jesus is the living stone, verse 4, the cornerstone, verse 6, the rejected stone, verse 7, and the stumbling stone in verse 8. And believers are the lively stones, verse 5, and so you might call us a chip off the old block. That being the case, verse 5 says exactly that. But wait, there's more. We are also our own priest. In other words, we don't need to run to a priest for intercession. Just look at verses 9 and 10. We see there something regarding the priesthood. First of all, Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's found in Hebrews chapter 7. But then we see also that we are our own priest when it says you are a chosen generation or royal priesthood. Revelation 1.6 also similarly says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus eliminated the middleman with his sacrificial death on the cross. It is inappropriate for a believer to depend on another man to absolve sin or mediate. Jesus and Jesus alone does this for all believers, so there it is. Believers are priests of God. As a matter of fact, believers are much more than priests, according to verse 9. We're a chosen generation, means a race or a kind. Uh, believers, therefore, are related spiritually. We are also a royal priesthood, as we mentioned, under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. We're a holy nation, means we're set apart. We are a nation of people set apart for God. And finally, we are a peculiar people. Now, that Greek word for peculiar there actually means purchased or acquired. So as believers, we are God's own possession. Then comes the responsibility associated with that. We saw those relational attitudes to be avoided in verse 1. Well, here are the attitudes to be pursued by believers in verses 9 through 12. First of all, show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Secondly, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And finally, have a conversation that is honest among the Gentiles. A couple of points ought to be noted here. First of all, Peter is encouraging Gentile believers to live a positive testimony. The readers here are identified as Gentiles in verse 10 when it says, which in time past were not a people. An elaboration of verse 12 on having conversation honest among the Gentiles is seen in the following verses regarding submission to authority. Incidentally, Peter obviously borrowed some of this terminology to describe the New Testament believer's position before God from a previous description of the Hebrews found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. 
Here's what that says. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, chapter 2, verse 13, regarding submitting to authority. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-being you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The tendency would have been to refuse obedience to an oppressive government like the Roman Empire under Nero. The lesson of Scripture is, as much as possible, that we should comply with the laws of our government leaders. Sometimes there's a clash, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, or with Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6. However, compliance with one's government, short of direct violation of Scripture principle, is a mandate of Scripture. Paul dealt with this issue of government authority rather comprehensively in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Peter makes an interesting Daniel-type distinction here in verse 16 when he says this, As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. That term cloak of maliciousness literally means using one's religion in a self-serving fashion and not a God-honoring way. In other words, don't resist the government by invoking Christian principle when there's really not any Christian principle involved there. Then Peter gives a word to servants, beginning with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Whose own self bow our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returning to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. While the direct application of Scripture here is to servants or slaves, the concept reaches way beyond them to all of us. In my commentary on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, I've written uh, an outline of some of the conditions for slavery during the first century within the Roman Empire. You may want to refer to that. But right now, let's just look at this. Christ was sinless, and yet he suffered. He suffered without complaint. Suffering is part of Christian living. Suffer graciously. Don't jeopardize your testimony in the process. Peter draws heavily from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 in this passage, but perhaps the most significant of these quotes is found in verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, 
where it was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer for our sin burden. A very significant comparison is seen here. When one does wrongly, he expects to be buffeted for such. However, when one does well and is still buffeted, this is a time when one's Christian character is really being tested. The comparison is that Jesus himself suffered for wrongdoing, even though he had done nothing wrong. Jesus is our example here. Then we have some admonition regarding husbands and wives. Who's in charge? Verse 1, chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Here's some self-explanatory verses on the husband-wife relationship. Now, I'll have to admit, not very politically correct by today's standards, but scriptural nonetheless. Notice the admonition here to a godly Christian example. Uh, that's to influence the husband, not living by scriptural principles, as we see in verses 1 and 2. A godly Christian example serves to influence him to obedience to God also. A modest appearance is encouraged in verses 3 and 4 on behalf of women. These two verses are intended to differentiate between the appearance of ungodly women as opposed to Christian women. Peter clearly establishes the marriage chain of command in verses 5 and 6. Here he makes reference to Genesis 18:12, where Sarah called Abraham Lord. The New Testament Greek word for Lord in verse 6 is kurios, which means master, as does its Hebrew counterpart, Adon, used in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. There's no question Peter is teaching that the husband is the head of the home here. Like I said, it's not very politically correct by today's standards, just scriptural by biblical standards. The admonitions to husbands is contained in verse 7, and it says, place a value on your wife and serve the Lord with her as a fellow heir. Likewise, Paul dealt with the subject of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. How well do you suffer? We see this dealt with in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Verse 8. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conversation, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Here's the reality. Times were very tough for believers when this was written during the reign of Nero. He hated Christians. The lesson here is to give the gospel even in the face of potential persecution as a result. The admonition of verses 8-11 through is for believers to be part of the solution and not the problem. We see here that you get a picture of what is really summarized with the statement, Love is brethren. We love our family in the worst of circumstances, even when they display undesirable conduct. So should believers treat one another at all times. Here's the promise that makes suffering bearable in verses 12 through 14. It's all in the Lord's hands. Peter here quotes Psalm 34 verses 15 and 16 in verse 12. Believers should exercise righteous actions regardless of circumstances. And when one's actions result in negative reactions, verse 14 encourages, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Verse 15 is a great apologetics verse, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh your reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. The Greek word for sanctify, as mentioned earlier, is the verb hagiazo. It means to set apart or make special. As such, believers should always be ready to explain what Christ means to them. Of course, unless a Christian practices the good conduct outlined in verses 8 through 14, then verse 15 may in fact fall on deaf ears. Our positive Christian example lends credibility to our message of Christ. That's what the good conscience of verse 16 references with an emphasis made once again in verse 17 that our suffering at the hands of others needs to be because of our unwavering faith rather than our own evil doing. Regarding the issue of suffering, though innocent, verse 18 begins with an example of Christ's suffering as a lesson to us but includes some rather interesting doctrinal implications. Christ's death was substitutionary in that his death, the just one, paid for the sins, the unjust, that's us. Of course, the purpose was to deliver us to God, meaning eternal life. Christ was crucified physically, but raised by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Concerning the preaching to the spirits in prison in verse 19, there's some pretty interesting supporting verses to indicate that Christ actually spent those three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection in Hades. Well, what I call the climate-controlled side of Hades. If you want to see more about that discussion, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. We see in verse 20 that Peter specifically mentions the disobedient during Noah's day. But there's no reason to see this as an exclusive group of non-believers. He seems to use them simply to make a water analogy, and that leads into verse 21. Now, regarding verse 21, this verse puts water baptism into clear perspective. You'll note here that water baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but rather the answer of a good conscience toward God. In other words, baptism is a testimony thing, not a salvation thing. If you want to see a more exhaustive discussion of water baptism, look at my commentary on Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. After the resurrection, Jesus assumed his place at the right hand of God. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is subject to Christ as God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is God incarnate. And that brings us to chapter 4, where Peter deals with being good stewards of God's grace. Verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch into prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so ministers the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These verses encourage believers to be careful about their personal testimony before the world. A contrast is seen between a life surrendered to Christ in verses 1 and 2 and the unregenerate lifestyle of verse 3. Verse 4 is an eye-opener. Here it is. The world will not understand why you don't act like them. Let's face it. The world normalizes bad conduct. They seek to make the conduct of verse 3 the norm for society. Now, Jesus is the one who will judge the quick, meaning the living and the dead, in verse 5. For more information regarding God's judgment, read the article that I've written called The Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. It's on the main page of BibleTrack.org in the center column there. Now, don't read too much into verse 6. 
these dead are Christians who had the gospel preached to them and then died. Some have sought to link this verse to 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and 19, due to some similar wording there. It does not appear that Peter is making any kind of a reference back to those verses. There's no question that the disciples of the first century believed that the return of Jesus would take place in their lifetimes. That's evidenced in Peter's statement in verse 7 where he says, but the end of all things is at hand. The Greek verb translated is at hand is a perfect active indicative verb uh, of the root word ingidzo, and thus it means has drawn near. Paul similarly believed that the return of Christ would take place in his lifetime when he said in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He also uses the same we reference in verse 15 of that same chapter. This has caused some to question the doctrine of the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Here's the reality. It's imminent. The disciples had asked Jesus after his resurrection and just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they said this, Lord, wilt thou this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Since that very day, they had expected the imminent return of Christ. The fact that Peter and Paul seemed to anticipate the return of Christ during their own lifetimes simply makes us realize that Jesus could appear at any time and it be in his own time. In the meantime, Peter encourages the mutual edification of believers in verses 8 through 11. All of our actions should be mutually considerate of others. We find then in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, that believers will undergo suffering. Verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now we're back to the overriding theme of Peter's letter, and that's trial. As I mentioned earlier, you may want to take a look at the article that I've written on trial, testing, and temptation. And it's in the upper right-hand screen of the uh, commentary on this very reading of today. Peter here admonishes us to be careful not to bring hard times upon ourselves through our own bad conduct. And that brings us to chapter 5. Beginning with verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Peter addresses the responsibility of elders, the Greek word presbyteros, in this closing chapter. So who exactly is he talking to here? Well, if you'd like to see a summary, a rather detailed article on the usage of the New Testament words, elders, bishops, and pastors, uh, take a look at the article that I've written. It's on the front page of BibleTrack.org and uh, entitled accordingly. There are three Greek words used here, and all three of these words speak to the exact same office, and that's the office of the pastor slash bishop slash pastor. As a fellow elder in verse 1, Peter is exhorting uh, other elders, and his qualifications for doing so, he cites his presence during the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Christ. The glory that shall be revealed refers to the appearance of Jesus Christ at the rapture. Paul makes a similar reference in Romans 8.18 when he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which should be revealed in us. For those who want to know more, Paul gives some details regarding our future glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 50. So here's Peter's exhortation with regard to the leadership style these elders should demonstrate. He gives that leadership style in verses 2 and 3. First of all, spiritually feed them as a shepherd cares for and feeds his sheep. Secondly, take the oversight over them willingly. Thirdly, don't oversee a group of believers for the money. Fourthly, don't lord over them. This Greek word is used in a negative context in every occurrence in the New Testament and indicates one's need to exercise power over someone else. And then finally, lead other believers by example. In verse 4, the appearance of the chief shepherd is a reference to Jesus as the rapture of the church. And then finally, we need to understand this in verses 5 through 14, that Satan is after us. Verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brethren to you, as I suppose, I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, elect together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. These are Christian living verses that encourage us to beware of Satan's sneaky methods of attacking us. Keep in mind, Satan cannot cause us to be lost again, but he'll work all day every day to prevent us from having a positive influence on others. Relationships are in view here, 
the way that we relate to other believers. The younger to hold in high esteem the experience of those who are the older. Here the Greek word presbyteros is used in the context of an older person rather than speaking specifically to the office of an elder. The word can mean either, only context actually tells us which meaning is intended. Humility is the key here as seen in verses 5 and 6. One who has surrendered to God sees himself as an instrument of God's grace rather than a self-sufficient, self-motivated entity. That is emphasized in verse 7 where we see that all of our care is rightfully surrendered to Jesus. He provides the strength to prevail over the enemy, Satan, seen in verse 8. I find the metaphor of verse 8 particularly sobering. Have you ever seen the way a lion stalks his prey? Watch out. Satan, like the lion, looks for opportunities of weakness in believers. The lion waits until the opportunity is completely right before he pounces. So does Satan. He creates circumstances around a believer conducive to compromise in an attempt to lead a believer away from spiritual safety. When that believer is most vulnerable, that's when Satan makes his big move, just like a lion. Verses 9 and 10 provide for us the preventive measures which should be taken against Satan. Resist him by remaining steadfast in the faith. Adversity is the normal state of Christian living. Remaining faithful in that adversity results in spiritual maturity, or in other words, makes you perfect, where the believer will find that he is established, strengthened, and settled. And that brings us to the conclusion of today's reading of 1 Peter, all five chapters. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.